And turn with me now to the book of Titus, chapter 1. Again, and we'll pick up where we left off last week, Titus chapter 1. As we start this morning, what I would like you to do is make a kind of mental list. What immediately comes to your mind uh, when you think about the, the maybe three to five greatest threats that Beaumont Baptist Church would face in 2021? And just whatever immediately comes to your mind, greatest threats to our church this calendar year. I would imagine as you start to make your list and as things just maybe pop into your mind a bit, uh, there are probably some things that just immediately come. We, we talk in the Bible about the world, the flesh, and the devil, and the dangers that each of those presents. And so maybe what comes to your mind right away is, is a threat to our church, well, uh, Satan, the devil. He's like public enemy number one. He would love to destroy our church. He would love to... Um, cause problems in any individual life in our midst. Or maybe you think of the world and all of its influences, and maybe along the lines of the world, uh, there are probably people specifically sitting in here right now, well, greatest threat to our church, well, it's the government. You know, it's 2021 and COVID and this and that, and the government's really just involved in everything right now. And you might think, well, that's a huge threat to our church. Or maybe you think, man, I could think, yeah, those things, okay, whatever, but like the single greatest threat I think is it's actually us and our own flesh and what's within each and every one of us that we could single-handedly like destroy our own church <laughs> without the devil even being involved because of our own sinfulness. Or maybe you think of things like division or something else. Uh, but as with so many other areas of life, the greatest threats are not always what immediately comes to mind. Sometimes the greatest threats are of a very subtle nature and even at times imperceptible. The church faces many, many threats, and our text today addresses two easily overlooked threats to the church. They're probably not what you would first think of. In fact, Paul's resource allocation clues us in on just how dangerous these two particular threats are. They pose such a risk that Paul actually leaves Titus on the island of Crete to travel to each and every one of the cities within Crete where there's a church, and in, within every one of those churches address these two potential concerns at these young and new, amongst these new and young uh, congregations on the island. You may recall from last week, I talked about this place that Titus is at, the island of Crete, is probably an exciting place uh, to minister, an exciting place to serve. The gospel hasn't been there very long. In fact, we're not even quite sure how the gospel made its way to Crete. We know that on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, there were Cretans there, and they could have uh, heard the gospel there on the day of Pentecost, gone back home, and the gospel, next thing you know, is starting to spread on this island. Paul and Titus end up there at one point. Uh, but people are coming to Christ. Churches are starting that are most likely full of new life, and brand new believers and people who maybe just literally left a whole old life behind, a whole different religious system behind, to follow Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And that's exciting. But even in the midst of all the good and great things going on in Crete, Paul knew that there was danger on this island for these young churches. And uh, what, what I think we want to take away from this text is that God wants you and I to take the steps needed that to protect our church from risk. The same types of risk that these young churches faced on this island of Crete. I'm going to read Titus 1, 5-9, and as I read this paragraph, uh, why don't you just see if you can maybe identify what are the, the likely potential risks that Paul is addressing as he writes to Titus. So Titus chapter 1, 
Beginning in verse 5, Paul writes to Titus, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Uh, Two threats to the church based on this passage. The first one is disorder. The church needs order. Look at verse 5 again. Paul writes to Titus, he says, This is why I left you in Crete, reason number one, so that you might put what remained into order. Uh, The first reason here that he leaves them is so that he could put things into order on the island of Crete. There was unfinished work to be done in Crete to bring the churches there into order. And you can imagine, they're new, they're newly formed, they're young, they're just getting off the ground. To achieve this order, Titus needed to actually uh, correct wrong situations and help build up right or proper ones. By the way, as I speak about order here, don't just think of logistics. When you think about order in the church, you might think, oh, everything needs to run perfectly and smoothly. And if we run a program, we should do it well or whatever the case may be. And that's certainly part of this. But don't just think logistics. Titus is striving for logistical. I think we could also say theological and relational order and probably some other things as well. In Crete, there were negative things that needed to be corrected, such as false teaching, as we'll see next week. And there were also positive things that need impl- needed implemented, needed to be implemented, such as elders. Paul, no doubt, has other things that he wants Titus to do as well that are in his mind. But Paul is highlighting a common problem within the church, and that problem is disorder. Uh, the second law of thermodynamics, if you remember that one from high school, basically states that all things trend towards disorder or entropy things tend to decay not result like come into life things are constantly declining or moving towards disarray things don't naturally move towards order they move away from it which means that order doesn't happen by accident and that that's true in all of life disorder within the church can be a result of several things it could be a result of our sin and our wrong choices, it could just come from our laziness and our apathy. It could come from spiritual maturity. But on the flip side of that, it could also come from some really good things. It could come from some positive things like growth and expansion, which is probably what's going on there in Crete. Imagine with me that you own a business. And I know we have people in our church who do. And your business starts to get crazy for a really good reason. It's growing. And maybe over the last year or two years, your church is, your, your, your business has grown 150% or your business has doubled. Well, that's probably really exciting for you as a business owner, but it's also challenging and stressful because what might be going on is your old systems and your structures and your rhythms and all the way this, that maybe you did things last year. Uh, all that is not sufficient to handle the volume of work you have coming in and you may find yourself short-staffed. And you, don't, you just don't have enough people to do all the work that you have coming in. Or maybe you, you said, oh, well, we've got more money coming in. Let's make some more hires here. And you hire new people, but you don't have them trained yet. You don't have them equipped. They may be great people, but they, they're just, you've got a lot of work to do to get there. 
or you might be playing catch up or constantly living in the realm of the urgent. You know, you're just whack-a-mole, just one boom, 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 one thing after another, just trying to, or trying to juggle and keep all the balls up in the air. You're not even really forward thinking anymore. You're just trying to make it all work. It's exciting and simultaneously chaotic. Both your opportunities and your risk are multiplying and you have to figure out how to bring all that into order and keep it there for the health of your business, for the health of your organization. And church would be very much the same way. It could be very much that same way. And order within the church, I think we could say it's a two-sided coin. You have church leadership and God obviously wants to use the leaders within a church uh, to promote order. All the way from the pastors and deacons and heads of different ministries and whatever the case may be, he wants to use those leaders, but he also wants to use the congregation. And Titus, what he needs to do on the island of Crete, he needs to help the leaders. And then Titus and the leaders need to help the people. Order is a constant, perpetual battle, and we need all hands on deck. Uh, I find it's hard to keep our home in order especially just the phase of life that we're in with children. If we don't stay on top of it, it'll get out of hand in no time. In 10 minutes, our house could be complete chaos. It's like it was literally all clean. <laughs> and 10 minutes later, it just totally, it's like a bomb went off. It's like every toy that we own came out, and I don't think the kids played with any of them. <laughs> they just threw them everywhere. And my garage would be the same way. As soon as I start working, it just turns into chaos. And if I don't get it cleaned and brought back into order, it's just, it just gets crazier and crazier and crazier. It's fun to get all these things out often, not so much fun to clean it up. As leaders in our home, I think it would be pretty obvious that my wife and I are critical to its orderliness. If we don't clean up our own messes and, and help and teach our kids to clean up their messes, our home will be in disarray. But as a father, I don't clean up all of my kids' toys for them. In fact, a good parent teaches his children how to do that and to live orderly. If, if all the toys are out and it's total chaos within the house, I'm going to tell my kids, pick up those toys. And I might even jump in and help them. Um, and my kids would be at different levels with that. So just, I just tell them, go, go clean it all up, and they get that. Our youngest child, though, that doesn't work. It's, no, go pick up this toy and put it in that basket. Go pick up that toy and put it in that basket. She needs more guidance. And in church life, it's very much that same way. You have leaders and people who are maybe a bit more in charge, and you have the whole congregation as a whole. This is a joint effort for us to have a church that is hopefully orderly. The church needs order. God wants his church to be organized and orderly in every realm, from logistics to theology and relationships. And God wants you to do what you can to make sure that that need is met. And so I'd ask you a few questions. Where as you look around at Beaumont Baptist Church, your church, where do you see ministry disorder? And I mean, like, let's not kid ourselves. It's here. <laughs> uh, and it's in every church, right? And, and that's not even necessarily a bad thing that that would be the case. That could mean a lot of good things are going on. Where do you see ministry disorder in your church? Maybe a, another question you should consider, in what ways are you hindering or standing in the way of order? Uh, I mean, I can do this. You can do this. We can all stand in the way of that. And maybe it's through our laziness or, well, I actually think something should be done a different way. So I don't really totally jump on board or even just a ministry that you serve in the importance of things like being on time, and being reliable. Uh, what, if anything, are you doing to contribute to disorder? 
And then how can you use your spiritual gifts to help bring order to the church? God's gifted us and wired us individually all very different. All kinds of people sitting in this room this morning, all kinds of people in the first service. Uh, God has made us and wired us and equipped us differently. And that's a blessing and a gift to the church. And God wants us to use our individual gifts to help. If I could offer a few practical words of advice, I'd actually encourage you one thing that you can do is actually be a disciple maker. Be someone who helps other people become a better follower of Jesus Christ. Um, Theological order can happen one discipleship relationship at a time. The, The church has all different types of people in it. You have people who have been saved for 30 years. They've read their Bible multiple times. They've heard, they've heard the Bible preached for decades. And you have people who maybe have just come to faith in Christ within the last couple of months. They're just getting introduced to their Bible, just trying to grow. And you have uh, maybe uh, knowledge gaps and understanding gaps between different people where some people have a lot of knowledge and other people don't have as much. And as a church, we always want to be helping each other take those next steps. And as we help each other and we teach each other, whether that happens one-on-one or publicly like this, our church grows theologically in our knowledge of God's word, and it reduces some of that uh, potential disorder and chaos. Also, don't sit on the sidelines as a critic. There's a saying that uh, spectators are critics, and it's so true in church life. Often the most critical people of a church and its ministry are the people who aren't involved. Because the people who are involved, they're part of the solution. They're working towards answers. They get it. They're right in the middle of it. They're knee-deep in it too. But when you sit on the sidelines, it's just easy to lob grenades. Well, this needs fixed and that needs fixed. Well, none of us should be that way. You're going to see problems. And actually, the longer that you're at our church, you're probably just going to see more and more of them, right? The more you look under the hood, every church has problems. And yet God wants you to get up and, and be a part of the solution. Do something about it. The fact that you see a problem might be a good indicator that you are God's intended solution. Uh, Another thing I would encourage you with on this matter of order is be a long-haul servant. I was sitting in a church service once, maybe 10 years ago now, and it was a, a combined Sunday school where basically they had the whole church together in one service for the Sunday school hour. And an elderly woman was being honored for te- teaching uh, the K-5 kindergarten Sunday school class for 50 years. She had been teaching that class for twice as long as I think I had been alive at that point in my life. And I think everyone in the, the building, as she's being honored, there's, you just respect There's something so commendable about that. Order is often built on longevity and faithfulness. And if I could maybe help illustrate that, consider the opposite of longevity. Imagine uh, a pastor, imagine this scenario. Imagine if the pastor of Beaumont Baptist Church changed every six months to two years. It's just a constant pattern. After a while, you would probably wonder if things were ever going to get off the ground. Because it, a pastor comes in, it's like he starts packing his, unpacking his bags, which is probably a multi-year process. He starts unpacking his bags, and as soon as he starts to get his pack, bags unpacked, he packs them up, and off he goes. New guy comes in, unpacks his bag. I mean, it's just this never-ending cycle. You're just getting to know him. He's just getting to know you. You're just starting to get organized, and then it all changes again. And you start to feel like, are we ever going to get this off the ground? Pastor turnover like that typically impedes order and progress within a church. It's easy to see how that's not really healthy for a church, typically. Well, 
that's easy to see when we talk about a pastor. But I, that reality would also hold true for pretty much every other servant in the church. Turnover like that's not good anywhere in ministry. And if you can be a long-haul servant in your place of ministry, that's probably going to lead towards order. And it probably means you're going to have to weather some storms. And I understand not every ministry and not every place in which you serve in a church is something that God wants you to do for decades. Sometimes that's not all the case. But I think we, we lack in our society a commitment and a longevity in almost anything. And that's permeated our churches, I think, as well. Also, grab the bull by the horns. Just jump in and be a part of, of what's going on here at our church. The church needs order, and God wants you to ensure, do what you can to ensure that that need is met. And uh, be a person who helps bring order and organization into your church, not chaos and disarray. Paul's actually going to bring up one particular matter, though, that needs finished. It needs brought into order. And that is the appointment of elders within the church, which brings us to our second threat to the church. Again, probably not the first threat that comes to anybody's mind. But the second threat here is ill-suited leadership. The church needs qualified elders. Look at verse 5 again. Titus, Paul writes to Titus, this is why I left you in Crete. Number one, so that you might put what remained into order. And number two, and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. The church needs qualified elders or pastors, and the importance of that cannot be overstated. Uh, by the way, remember that an elder is a pastor. As you read your Bible, you're going to come across the term elder. You're also going to come across terms like overseer. The terms elder and pastor are interchangeable. If we have elders in this church, you really should feel comfortable with referring to that person as pastor so-and-so. It's the same role. People often, I think, get confused and they think, no, no, they're, they're separate roles. You have pastors and then you have elders and then you might have deacons. And pastors and elders, they're two different things. No, 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 they're the same thing. Same role. Just in my scenario, I'm the only one here that's paid, so I can devote myself to that role full-time. Where someone's serving in it as a layman, he's probably working a full-time job, he doesn't have maybe as much time to devote to that. Appointing elders or pastors is likely Titus' top priority in Crete. Before we dive into the qualifications that were given in the rest of this paragraph, I want to make a couple quick observations from verse 5. There are multiple churches on the island of Crete. Uh, Titus is to appoint elders in every town. So he's traveling across this island. Everywhere there's a church, he's appointing elders. And each one of those churches needs a plurality of leadership. Paul tells Titus to appoint elders plural. Plurality of leadership is the typical pattern within the New Testament. Almost everywhere you see elders in the New Testament, you see them in the plural. There may be one lead pastor, but he's functioning with a team and sharing leadership with them, and that's a really good, healthy thing. The details of this appointing process are not given in this text. On first impression, you might get the idea that Titus is solely responsible to select these men and appoint them. Titus doesn't even live in Crete. This isn't even his home. However, uh, what's very likely going on here is that that word appoint is the last step in a process of, of these men being put into this position. Much like what's going on in Acts chapter 6, uh, where the congregation, they've got some problems, and the apostles 
say to the congregation, well, we need some, we need some good men here. Why don't you guys pick uh, seven good men who, who meet some qualifications, and then you bring those men to us, and as, as apostles, we'll, we'll then appoint them to this role. Very likely there's a process much like that going on here in Titus chapter 1. We're just not given any of those details. Also, I want to highlight from this verse that the qualifications are laid out by apostolic authority. Paul tells Titus to do this, to appoint these men. He says, as I directed you. And then he gives this list of qualifications. He's not giving Titus the nudge. Like, you know what, Titus? I I, I left you on Crete, and you're just being a lazy bomb. You just need to get with it as I directed you and get this job done. That's not what's going on. Rather, Paul is making clear for Titus and any of the people at these churches who would read this letter that these qualifications are demanded by apostolic authority. God requires this. Titus wasn't going to the churches saying, this is what I think you need in a guy. Instead, it's, no, this is what God demands. It's not like, well, you know, it's up to your church leadership. You just kind of decide the guys that you think you need and what they're like, and that'll do. No, God expects this everywhere in every church. These are the qualifications. So with some of that in mind, let's jump into these qualifications for elders and pastors, and we should note the broad scope of these qualifications. They're far-reaching into a man's life. In fact, Paul starts with an umbrella qualification in verse 6 when he says, if anyone is above reproach, the idea, if anyone is is blameless. Not speaking of perfection there, um, a pastor, the, the way that I like to illustrate this, and I've done this before at Beaumont, but I think it'd be good to kind of maybe get this idea in your mind. A pastor should be a Teflon man. Many of you cook with Teflon pans, and there's this premise behind Teflon that theoretically you should be able to cook in your Teflon pan and nothing stick to that pan. The whole point of Teflon pans is that nothing actually sticks, and a pastor should be a Teflon sort of guy. In the sense that people may throw stuff at him. But even though they throw stuff at him, nothing actually sticks. So they may throw eggs at his character. But those eggs don't actually stick. He's a Teflon man. He's, he's above reproach. That's the umbrella qualification. Anyone who's in leadership and if they're leading a certain direction, not everyone's going to like them. Not everyone's going to approve of what, what they're doing or whatever the case may be. And people may attack a, a leader anywhere at any church. But even when that happens... What should be proven is that, that those, they just don't stick. This man meets these character qualifications. Now the text uh, gets more specific, beginning with marriage and family qualifications. Look at verse 6. It says, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Uh, does this verse, you might get the idea, this verse requires uh, a pastor, an elder to be married and to have actually multiple children. I don't think that's actually being required here, but it's probably just uh, putting this in the context of what is the typical situation. Also, husband and father, uh, like what's described here in this verse, those are both male roles. The pronouns used in this text, they're masculine. And remember, God is, uh, these qualifications are coming by apostolic authority. It's not like, well, Titus just had this idea or, or whatever the case may be. This is coming to us from God. Female elders are unbiblical. And I think in the world in which we live, that, that reminder just needs to come. Paul's giving these qualifications under apostolic authority. 
What's this guy supposed to be like as a husband? Well, we're told he's supposed to be the husband of one wife or a one-woman man. And big picture, what's going on is marital and sexual fidelity are required of any potential elder. And then it talks about him as a father. The text says, if you look back down at it again, it says, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. I could actually preach a whole sermon on on that little section there. I think that might be helpful at some point. For now, I kind of want to hit the, the mountain peaks of what's going on there. Do an elder's children need to be saved for him to be qualified? Is a, a pastor whose children are not saved not qualified for that role? Well, there's actually a translational debate going on in this text. I want to describe it briefly. There's a, a one word, it's the Greek word pistos, which can be translated either as faithful or as believing. And in this case, it makes a big difference which way you go. If you translate it like our text does as believing, that would imply that this pastor's kids need to be saved. And if you translate it as faithful, that implication is not there. But whichever way you translate, it's going to make a huge difference for your interpretation. Typically in translation, it's the context that helps you know in a scenario like that which way to go. But if you were actually to grab 10 different translations right now and you were to put them in parallel columns and look at them, I think what you would see, you'd almost see this 50-50 split where you'd see 50% of translations translating as believing and the other 50% translating uh, as faithful. So this is a tough one. Let me give you a few reasons, though, why I'm personally and theologically inclined to think that faithful is the best translation and that God actually does not require an elder's children to be saved. And here would be the first one. I'm just going to give you a couple. I, I could list more, but the first one would be this. God himself actually has wayward, rebellious, unbelieving children. And as you can read your Old Testament without coming to that conclusion, I don't know how you do that. I mean, you look at the children of Israel and the way that within Israel you had true believers and, and you had ones who weren't really believers and truly born again, as we would to use a New Testament term. God himself has wayward, rebellious, unbelieving children. Just look at Israel. And also the other qualifications given in this list and also from our scripture reading this morning in 1 Timothy 3, they have to do with what a man can actually control. Like his character. And in this particular situation, we could say when it comes to a man's kids, as long as they're in his home, he can, to some extent, control their behavior. But when you start talking about that kid's salvation, I mean, would you dare to say that, that a man can actually control 100% whether or not his kid comes to saving faith? That would be a big statement. For me personally, I'm fully convinced that salvation is a miraculous, sovereign work of God. And that God has, God has to do this regenerating work in the life of any child, of any pastor, of any elder. And given some of those dynamics, I, I, that's what would lead me to think that faithful is the best translation. Also with this verse in, in a pastor's kids, uh, the verse refers to sins of wild moral living and disobedience. We're not talking about little Johnny has a bad attitude <laughs> here and there, or, or jo little Johnny sins and needs, needs corrected. 
Paul is talking about kids living profligate lives and not being subject to authority. And there are some other things about the language and grammar of this text that seem to indicate that this verse is specifically referring to uh, when this child is still under his father's roof. These kids are, would be living this way under dad's watch and on dad's dime, and that is not okay. Eli in the Old Testament is the classic example of this. You remember Eli, he's a priest and his son's a priest and his sons are just wicked, wicked, wicked men. And Eli knows about it and he just sort of turns the other way and pretends like it's not a problem. And that, that is not okay. I would say this, if our congregation interprets this qualification differently, so there may be some of you, you'd look at this and go, I, I, I think an elder's kids need to be saved. And others of you may say, I just can't get there. I don't think that that's actually a requirement. I think it's okay for us to disagree on that. I don't, I don't even think that's a problem really at all. At the end of the day, though, we're all looking for good men. And the big question we have to ask goes back to the, the umbrella qualification. Is this man blameless? Big picture, as a father, this man needs to be leading his home. That means that in a gospel-centric way, he deals with problems in his home and with his kids. Mom's not running the show. He's leading his home as a responsible father. If he's not doing that, he's not qualified. And I should just mention that really all these qualifications, God wants this for, for all of us, for all of our homes, for all of our families, for all, all of our character. The qualifications start in a man's own household and how he manages it. And then we're told the reason for that in verse 7. The explanation comes, well, he's God's steward. He's God's household manager. Verse 7 explains an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. What is that word steward referring to? It's referring to someone chosen by his employer or master to manage his his business or, or his household. The word translated steward, it's the word oikonomos. The first part of that word oikos means home. Anyone reading this passage in its original language would have just made the connection that we're talking about an elder's home and now this transition is being made to, to God's home, God's house. If you want to know how someone will manage God's house and God's family, you look at how he manages his own house and his own family. And that's precisely the point that Paul makes in 1 Timothy 3, verse 5. If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the church of God? So the text starts with a man's home and then moves from marriage and family qualifications to personal and character qualifications. Verse 7 repeats the idea that an elder must be above reproach. The idea is not perfection, uh, but that these character qualities should, should really, they should characterize his life. In verses 7 to 8, we have a list of vices, then followed by a list of virtues, things he must not be, followed by things he must be. Verse 7 begins with vices, he must not be arrogant. The word used here means self-willed, it can imply someone who's overbearing, prideful, arrogant. The church does not benefit from prideful men at the helm. And then it moves on to, he shouldn't be quick-tempered. Someone who's quick to become angry. On the contrary, he should be peaceable and contentious. Eldership involve, can involve, uh, well, it's got, it involves so many good things. And it can involve challenges. You're, you're in the business of people. The church does not benefit from quick-tempered men at the helm. Then a drunkard, if a man struggles with drunkenness, he's not qualified to be an elder. And then violent, an elder 
Can't be the type of guy who's looking for a fight or who's pugnacious or uh, who, who is maybe just a bit of a bully. Or then greedy, next on the list. Greed disqualifies a man from eldership. If a man has uh, wrong attitudes and ideas about money, that's a very, very dangerous thing for the church. And it can could, it could manifest itself in very practical ways. If, if a man is really greedy, especially if he's in a lay elder role, he may become so consumed with his career and making more money that he actually isn't available for the church that he's been called to shepherd. He doesn't have time. Or elders could exploit their position for personal gain. Uh, we sometimes talk about the corporate ladder. And I think we often think that people, men at the top of that, are probably the most likely candidates for eldership within a church. I would say about the corporate ladder that a man could climb that ladder in a very godly way with very godly attitudes and motives. I think of Joseph in the Old Testament. He's literally risen all the way to the top and it was God who put them there for God's glory. And Joseph's this man full of character. But as I said, I think it's easy to think that the guys at the top of that ladder are the ideal guys for church leadership. And on the one hand, that could be true because in many ways to probably climb a ladder like that, you're going to have to be hardworking. You're going to have to be committed. But on the flip side of that, I think something that we don't often consider is that some of the greatest lay elders, lay pastors, are not the ones climbing the corporate ladder. But the ones who, maybe they could climb it, but they're choosing not to. So they're then free to serve and minister to the church. Remember, pastoring is a big commitment. And then verse 8, Paul turns from these vices to now virtues. According to verse 8, an elder must be hospitable. That word means a lover of strangers. He should be the type of man who welcomes and receives others and cares about them and their needs. And then a lover of good, as opposed to a lover of evil. Self-controlled, that could apply to almost anything in a man's life. That upright and holy, he should be striving to live a righteous life and uh, living a holy life separated from sin and to the Lord. Discipline, another very important qualification. And then it moves on to Bible and theological qualifications, verse 9. It says he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. The Bible. He must be devoted to the word of God. Why? Well, so he can do two things. He would be able to instruct, verse 9, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, and then also to rebuke, verse 9, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. We'll look more at those things next week. We've noted the, the broad scope of these qualifications, but it's also important to note the absolute necessity of these. You can't just put anyone into this role. These qualifications are not optional. They're essential. How do we know that? That these character qualifications are an absolute necessity. Well, in verse 5, Paul tells Titus, appoint elders in any si- every, every city. And then verse 6, it starts with the word if. Appoint if. Appoint if. These guys have to meet these qualifications. And if they don't, they can't be in this role. And then further, verse 7 says, an overseer as God's steward must be. And we see that word must multiple times. Again, these qualities, qualifications are an absolute necessity. The church needs qualified men. And God wants you to do what you can to ensure that that need is met. Uh, So how do you do that here? How do you do that at Beaumont Baptist Church? Well, first of all, I would encourage you, pray that God will provide such men for our church. Pray that way. Satan loves to destroy character. 
He loves it when people fall into sin. He would love for Beaumont Baptist Church not even to have men who, who, who met the character qualifications. Whether Even if God's not calling them to be an elder, God would just love our church to be full of, full of men who aren't growing and who do not have this character. And so you can pray that, that God will raise up men in our church who have this character. And the ones who are already in this role, that this character will only grow and develop. And pray for the men who currently occupy the role of elder and pastor at our church. And uh, along those lines, uh, pray for their wives, pray for their kids, pray for their families. And I would also encourage you on a little bit of a tangent, I, I, I hope you'll just thank those guys. I'm not asking you to thank me specifically, but I, I've had the privilege of currently serving with and having served with some really great guys. But I'm always the one that's seen and maybe known a little bit more. But I hope you'll, you'll go to those guys from time to time and just say, thank you. Thank you for your leadership and commitment to our church and your shepherding of our church. And then perhaps one of the biggest things that you can do in our church, which has a congregational polity, and the congregation actually makes some big decisions, carefully nominate and vote on men. It matters who you nominate. It matters who you vote on to be in these roles. It really, really does. Because it's critical, ensure your church's needs are met. Work towards order. Try to help uh, make sure we have godly men in place. Why are these things so important? They're important because Jesus loves his church. He shed his blood for his church. And he wants it to have good men leading it and leading the people that he loves and he wants his church to be a place of order. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me at this time?